0: This is Millennially Speaking, a podcast about politics, pop culture, and everything in between. I'm David Latimer. This week, we're talking about why the Senate can't do its job, a new Saturday Night Live hire, and Bill Maher's solution to obesity. But first, I'd like to talk about the Senate, and this is actually something that we discussed last week that I would go into a little bit deeper, and that is the filibuster. The filibuster use in the Senate and a lot of people don't understand what the filibuster is or even how the Senate operates and can get votes done. So basically the what the filibuster is, is it's any uh, attempt to delay a vote through discussion and debate. The reason the filibuster exists in theory is to allow both sides of the aisle to fully vet a policy idea or fully vet legislation and get all of the arguments out, and that way, once they go to a vote, they have fully vetted that process and that policy, and there's no more need for discussion. But in practice, that has not been the case. So first of all, regarding the history of the filibuster, uh, a lot of people like to say that the filibuster was designed by the founders and that... It was their idea that because the House works in one way and the Senate works in a different way, that this was that thing that makes the Senate different. The filibuster is not something that originated from the founders. Anyone that likes to say that just is not uh, keen to history, doesn't know history. There's several examples in both the Federalist Papers and opinions by Alexander Hamilton and James Madison, all founding fathers who said that things like supermajorities prevent things from getting done. And that's what the filibuster essentially is. The the Senate, in the Senate you need a simple majority to get things passed, except with the filibuster you need a uh, 60 vote to end the filibuster period and move on to a vote. So essentially, you do need 60 votes to pass anything. In the Senate, because if you are somebody who is, you know, say like our current situation, we have 54 Republicans, they don't need 54 votes to get something passed. They need 60 votes. So they need at least all of their party plus six Democrats to get anything passed. And you know that in the current climate, that's nearly impossible. That's, you know, that's that's not what we have been told. That's not what is being promoted as here's what the Senate does. The Senate is supposed to work in this just simple majority, but that's not how it works. The The idea that you need 60 votes to end filibustering and to move on, in theory, is also okay because you don't want the minority party to not get their say and not get their full piece, and you don't want the whoever the majority party is just to push everything and not let the minority have a voice at all. But what you think of as a filibuster would be, you know, debate and lively discussion. But what happened is back in the 70s, that process of continual debate and needing to stand up and, and make a continuous speech was no longer required. That law or that that piece of filibustering was removed. So you don't even have to do any kind of long term endurance anymore. You don't have to stand up there and speak. You can just say that you intend to filibuster, and that's enough. So by invoking that filibuster, you no longer have to have any kind of lively debate or anything at all. You just don't have to take it up for a vote. And that's insane to me that we are using this little rule that you know, we say that the the founders wanted, but the founders did not want it. There is no indication. And don't take my word for it. Do your own research and look this stuff up because there are examples that here's something from Alexander Hamilton writing in the Federalist Papers. One of the things that he talked about is that the supermajority requirements of the original Articles of Confederation were such a problem and it, it prevented anything from getting done because... The, the concept of having to have debate and forcing the two sides to come together and, and forcing the two sides to work together and, and find you know common ground, that's just not the case. The point of the filibuster is to prevent legislation from going forward, and that can be used on both sides. Both parties have done this, and both parties have used the filibuster for their advantage because it prevents anything from the minority party from getting through. And I get the impulse to want the minority party to obviously have a voice and to have a say and to be able to prevent the majority party from just passing anything that they want. I absolutely understand that. And I understand that in theory, the filibuster should do that. It should be able to, let's say, if we were to flip around the the Senate majority right now, say we had a Democrat majority in the Senate if they were able to just pass anything they wanted, you know, the so-called middle America would feel a little left out because if they just needed a simple majority, they could just pass everything that they wanted and a big chunk of the country would feel left out. And and the the people that would be left out are the ones that historically have had, you know, less of a voice or or feel like they've had less of a voice. But the point is that a governing body a body like the senate who should be able to get things passed and get things done just is not and you can see how the when you remove the filibuster it actually does get things done whether you know it's a good thing or not the requirement for the filibuster for uh, court confirmations one of the one of the things that we've been talking about like uh, Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation and, and Supreme Court and, and lower court confirmations, how they used to need a filibuster, you know, 60 vote majority. They no longer need that. They just need a simple majority. So even like Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation could have been delayed had that still been in place. But because they decided to remove it to expedite the process, you can see that things got passed. So that's an example of maybe some people would disagree with that to remove the filibuster but it just shows that the the party that is in power they are able to actually get something accomplished because they've removed this terrible rule that does prevent progress and we can see how when you have and and, and put it this way in in the republican controlled senate very little is getting passed and you would think oh, well, the the Republican majority is able to do really what they want because they control the Senate. And that's just not the case. But even the minority party, who is supposedly the ones that can filibuster and prevent things from passing, they're not getting anything done either. So how is it possible that we have this this body that's supposed to be doing this and neither side is able to get anything accomplished? It, it means you would have to thereby get a 60-vote vote or a 60 Senate majority, 60 Senators in there in your party to get anything accomplished, and then the point of the filibuster is no more, because then the point is to supposedly give voice to the minority party. But if all you need is just that slim margin there, if you eliminate that margin, now it's 60-40, then what is the point of the filibuster? It just raises the bar and therefore means that nothing will get passed. And look... Things may not go your way if you, say, you remove the filibuster and a party that you don't like is in power. They're able to now pass the things that they want to pass, and that's just some of the unintended consequences of it. And I get that. I absolutely get that impulse to not want that to become the new norm but it's not like the current system is working the way it's supposed to either. You know, the filibuster used to be something that was a a rare tool that was used. If you look back on records from, say, the 60s, they there was sort of this gentlemanly agreement that I'm not going to use the filibuster, but I would never fight to get rid of it because I want the minority party to be able to use it. In the last decade, that's been used, you know, over 500 times. Again, don't just take my word for it. Look this stuff up. The The use of the filibuster has increased not to, you know, prevent, quote unquote, bad legislation or anything like that. It's just to get a win on your side. And the fact that we've been fed this lie that the Senate can, you know, get anything accomplished with this is just false because the Senate has used the filibuster so much in the last decade. Just take a look at, you know, what was something that was passed in the Senate, the the last major thing passed in the Senate in the last decade. That would be Obamacare the Affordable Care Act. Other than that, the Senate does not get things passed. And that's in part because of the filibuster. You know, you can't really think of any other major legislation that the Senate has actually approved. And, you know, there's, like I said, there's unintended consequences. But in my opinion, the filibuster has to go, you know, despite whoever might be in power, you know, whether it's a Republican majority or a Democratic majority, because You know, if you if you voted for Trump and you voted to have this majority in the House and the Senate, you were expecting, you know, whatever Trump's policies are going to be, whatever Trump wants to do, we're going to get it done because that's what he promised. But the problem was that despite having the majorities, you had a Senate who was basically unable to do anything. And I think the narrative has been that it's the the rhinos, the Republicans in name only that have been preventing things from getting done. But that's not the case because the Republicans still had a good majority and you had some some cross-party, you had a few Republicans um, dissent and you had a few Democrats who were in favor. But they needed 60 votes to be able to go to an actual vote, 60 people deciding were done debating and that never happened. So it's not that the the Republicans were doing something wrong or the Republicans didn't want to get anything passed. It's that this filibuster rule prevented anything from happening and the Democrats knew that. And what's going to happen is when you flip parties around again, when, say, the the Senate is controlled by Democrats, you're going to get the same problem because then the Republicans will be the obstructionists, not the Democrats. So, again, the unintended consequences are definitely there, but I think there is definitely more of an upside to removing the filibuster than there is to keeping it. The next one I want to talk about is probably the most predictable story that I could imagine when I first heard about it. And that is the hiring then quick firing of new Saturday Night Live cast member Shane Gillis. So if you hadn't heard about this story, here's what happened. So it's the end of the summer. It's almost the start of the new Saturday Night Live season uh, in about a week or so. And around this time every year, they announce new cast members. So This year they announced that there would be three new featured cast members, so not the full, you know, build that go into almost every sketch, but they'll be in a few sketches throughout the night. Um, They announced three new cast members, one of them being Shane Gillis. And he's a comedian, he's a white comedian, and uh, when they announced this, there was a lot more attention paid to, uh, I I don't recall his name, but he is the first full-time Asian-American cast member, and that was a big deal, and that was sort of the, of the three, they were looking at it, and that was the the big headline out of it. Uh, but a few days pass, and we learn about some racist, homophobic, just some some really not okay things that Shane Gillis had said in either stand-up, uh, he said some things during a podcast that he was in, he tweeted a few uh, poor uh, jokes or, or statements, and... There was a lot of discussion about this. There was some question of, you know, should we have him as a cast member anymore? You know, he he ended up releasing a statement that essentially said that as a comedian, you need to push boundaries and be basically be outrageous. And sometimes the jokes don't land, um, but always be sort of like. Just doing these things that get people's attention and and shock people. And that is somewhat true. You know, you have people like Sarah Silverman. She has built a career around, and partially this is a, a gender thing, but saying things that you wouldn't expect to come out of her mouth. And she's done quite well because of that. But that's just one of, that's her shtick, I would say. That she says unexpected things and that's just how her, she has built her career. But... A few days passed after that statement, there had been some back and forth. Obviously, people in the media were talking about it and, and you know, putting in their two cents. And in the end, they decided to let Shane Gillis go, that he would no longer become a cast member of Saturday Night Live. And they, in a, in a statement, they had said that they had spoken with Shane Gillis and they both decided that he would no longer be on the cast. And essentially saying that it was a uh, mutual decision, almost. Everything about this story to me was so predictable from the beginning, and I've, I have a lot of issues with it. So so first of all, uh, when you find out about these kinds of statements and things, and I as soon as I saw the news story about it, I said, give it a few days, he's going to be gone. He'll be fired. That's it. Um, not Whether that's the right decision or the wrong decision, I could just see from a mile away SNL was going to fire him. And... It, In my opinion, I think there's a time to, you know, to to not take certain things out of context and to not like like keeping in mind a lot of the things that they were talking about that he had said were intended to be comedy pieces. Granted, racism and homophobia are not a funny thing. But I would implore people to listen to other people's comedy, not in the context of there's a news story that you said racist and homophobic things, like if you take it out of that context, that they've said some not so good things and it just goes under the radar and nobody really cares. Some of the things that he said others have gotten away with and gotten away with worse, uh, but that's that's neither here nor there. My issue with it, or, or one of my issues with it, is that it took maybe a day for people who were curious about these new people to find these kinds of things to find these incendiary comments to find the the racist and homophobic remarks the all, with all the resources at NBC and Saturday night live how is it possible that no one there thought let me google Shane Gillis real quick because clearly that's all it really took to to go back to his catalog and find at least more than one example because if you're looking and you find only one example maybe that's you know deep in the archives or or buried a little bit but i mean they found enough examples and and they found plenty of things to be able to say like hey here's you know here's what he said here's what he does and i just find that amazing that that, that and they even admitted in their in their statement that their hiring process or isn't you know sophisticated or something and that you know they they still they don't catch certain things and and they're not good at the the vetting process well yeah you're right you're terrible at the vetting process because you're you know neglecting to do something that regular people do all the time that we can just google somebody and find out all of the things about them you know past remarks past problems things that we just need to we're, we're just curious about and and for a hire for, for such a prestigious and well-known show, I feel like if you're trying to work around the corner at the, at the drugstore, you get your social media looked at, you know? So how is it possible that something so important like Saturday Night Live isn't looking at somebody's past? We always have to put down our, our social medias on our, our applications for jobs nowadays. And, you know, if we have any websites or anything like that, if they're, they're looking them up, if you're a serious candidate, how did Saturday Night Live not do that? That that would be my main two problems with this. I think you need to understand the context of what he said and maybe not just immediately jump on the fire bandwagon and the cancel culture. Uh, but then also, you know, before you even announce the hire, please just do your vetting because this whole story has become a cultural thing about, you know, quote unquote, PC culture run amok. And it didn't have to be because they could have very easily just not offered him the job had they done a simple google search so saturday night live learn from this please do better and don't hire somebody who says incendiary things and then have to fire them immediately because then you've become part of the story rather than just hiring somebody who doesn't say those things to begin with Lastly, what I wanted to talk about is another pop culture story, and that involves Bill Maher. So I'm not a huge Bill Maher fan, and I know a lot of Democrats are not Bill Maher fans either. He is uh, hes an HBO host, and he is known for being liberal, but in other ways not as liberal as the more progressive liberals are nowadays. He's very anti-religion and specifically anti-Islam. He's anti-Muslim, and that's one of those sticking points that a lot of progressive liberals dislike about him. So I know that Bill Maher does not really speak for Democrats and and progressive liberals nowadays, but regardless, he is still on television, and he's still a big influence and and says a lot of things and makes a lot of noise. Um, One of the segments that Bill Maher did lately, or did, I think it was this past week on his show, is he was talking about fat shaming, and... Fat shaming, obviously, is when you make someone feel ashamed for their weight. Obviously, that's that's pretty self-explanatory. Um, and he said that fat shaming needs to make a comeback, that we need to not celebrate um, being overweight or being obese, and we should, by doing that, by, by reinstating quote-unquote fat shaming, we can you know, make obesity go down, the obesity rates go down or something, basically to stop glorifying being overweight. And you see a lot nowadays, you see these um, plus-size models, and, and more so than what modeling agencies would call plus-size nowadays. They are much bigger, full-figured women. Um, and it's it's just something that is now in pop culture. Well... Uh, another late night host, host of the Late Late Show, uh, James Corden, he had a rebuttal to Bill Maher's statement, and he basically went off on him. Uh, James Corden is, I would say, slightly overweight. Um, he's not a a skinny person, um, but he basically said that to to Bill Maher that fat shaming is bullying. By definition, it is bullying. It is telling someone that they're not okay as a human being, that that their weight is just something that defines them and makes them not okay as a human being. And he said basically that he needs to start considering some of the things that come out of his mouth because the, the people that are overweight, they know they're overweight, and fat shaming does nothing to help them. And I get that. So for those that don't know, I was overweight for most of my life, um, probably from about second grade, Until even nowadays, I still struggle with my weight, but I lost like 50 pounds about five years ago. So um, it's definitely still a struggle for me, but it is something that I have overcome at least the worst of. And from experience, I know James Corden is absolutely right that fat shaming, one of those things about fat shaming is that skinny people are the ones that do the fat shaming and they have no idea what it is like to be overweight uh, when they've been skinny all their life. And not to say woe is us for being overweight, because clearly we did something to get to this point. Um, I don't like the argument that being overweight is all about genetics or, or people that are overweight use the genetics part a little too much to justify it. But he's right. We all know that we're overweight. It's not, you know, telling us that we're overweight and fat shaming us does not, you know, oh, I had no idea that I was overweight. Thank you for letting me know and I will do better. You know, the the point of fat shaming is to uh, let somebody know that they're fat. Like, that doesn't make any sense. And and he also said that fat shaming leads to, it's, it's shame. It leads to, uh, you know, destructive behaviors, including overeating. I mean, it sounds crazy, but for those that have never been overweight, I mean, you can, when you have that kind of shame on you, you tend to overeat but it feels even worse when you are already overweight and you just tend to eat more. It's very counterproductive, but it is just what people tend to do. And and even if it's not overeating, perhaps it's some other kind of eating disorder like you starve yourself and that's not healthy either. So it's it's just the idea that he is very pompous in his response and um That's Bill Maher. He's pompous in his response, and he is coming from a place of ignorance. And again, I don't like to... I don't want to be the advocate of people who are overweight uh, to, to say that I speak for all people who are overweight. But I would say, coming from experience, that is what I would say, is that someone who's never been overweight doesn't really have a voice in this fight because... They're just coming from a different experience. It's the same thing when white people like to talk about racism in the specific experience kind, not the abstract of of racism in the country or racism in general, but from experiences. Because white people don't understand how black people feel about certain things because they're not black and they're not seen in a different way by other people or by certain people. So the same thing goes for Bill Maher. He's never been seen as overweight or felt what it feels like to be seen as overweight because that's the worst part is not just the being overweight part but constantly thinking about other people and how they view you because that sort of puts a a weight on you all the time you know a a metaphorical weight on your shoulders all the time of constantly feeling like you're you're having to think about it of being viewed a certain way or am I going to fit in this seat or are my clothes going to fit or whatever the, the case may be? So in that same way, I would just say Bill Maher needs to, as as James Corden said, he just needs to think about these kinds of things. And I know that Bill Maher won't because that's not who Bill Maher is. But these are just some of those things. And I, I think it was, it was a couple of years ago there was a comedian on YouTube who did the same thing and she she made a big rant about fat people and how she hates fat people and fat people are disgusting and and that got me all passionate a couple of years ago too cuz it it really bothered me but it's the same kind of thing it's it's these i mean it's thin privilege if you want to call it that i don't i don't want to put a label to it but it's kind of thin privilege it's not understanding where an overweight person is coming from because you've never been that so just like i said A few weeks ago about racism, I would say do the same thing here, and it's a fact that people have certain feelings and and maybe just consider people's feelings a little bit more. Don't think of fat people or overweight people in the abstract, but think about it maybe more on a personal level and think, I don't want to hurt this particular person, so why would I say something not to be outrageous or to be thought-provoking, but to just, on a human level, maybe I shouldn't comment on something like that. And that's it for this edition of Millennially Speaking. I'm David Latimer. Be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you like this podcast, share us with your friends. We're also on Instagram at Millennially Speaking and on Twitter at Underscore MS podcast. Thanks for listening.